Photography in one form or another exerts a great influence on our daily lives. An illustrative photographer must be imaginative. You have to be on the edge of something. You've either got to be on the edge of a war or fear or loss. I don't think you can just have everything perfect. There's got to be some kind of an edge in there. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and this is Magic Hour, the show that delves into the minds of photographers and people involved in the medium. We learn about their backgrounds, thought processes, and ideas that have shaped their work. Today I speak with Magnum photographer David Allen Harvey. For the past 35 years, David has been traveling around the world on assignment for National Geographic while simultaneously pursuing his own work. He's published four books, one of which, based on a true story, was included in the third volume of Martin Parr and Jerry Badger's photo book history. David is also a teacher and mentor, and his legendary workshops have influenced and affected many emerging photographers. David started to blog very early on about his daily life and work, and that blog organically transformed into Burn, now a popular online photography magazine. For the past five years, Byrne has also published books and award numerous grants to emerging photographers to pursue their personal work. I interviewed David in North Carolina's Outer Banks, where he lives in a beachside clapboard fisherman's house that he fixed up with the help of his sons. The evening I arrived to interview David, he had also invited a few friends for a barbecue, one of which brought along his accordion that he entertained the party with. And that's David's style. A lot of action. In one hand, there's a little glass of tequila, but in the other, always his camera. The social media experience for me just started with uh, starting a blog. And I started a blog when I didn't even know what a blog was. I'd never seen anyone else's blog. And we had a guy come into Magnum one day and was talking about the social media. I had absolutely zero interest. I didn't even really know what that meant. But then when he started talking about uh, having your own audience, I thought, wait a minute. You know, everything that he's saying that you need to, to be active in the social media, I've, I've got that because I knew I had an audience and I knew it just from my workshops. I knew that when I put a workshop out there, I was getting students from all over the world. And that surprised me because um, at National Geographic, you have no sense of who your audience is. You hear that the magazine's got 12 million circulation, reaches 40 million people, but it's all very abstract. And then when I started doing a blog, I realized that there were real people out there who did know me, probably mostly from National Geographic at that time. And so I built up a, an audience rather quickly, and it was, uh, it was just a lot of fun. So you just essentially started writing. I mean, writing about your life, about work, and, and that just started to catch on. The original Road Trips blog had four parts to it. Part of it was about kind of my daily life. I think one part of it was retrospective, one part of it was family, and one part of it was about other photographers and what they were doing. So I was actually running four blogs in one blog. Wow. And then after a while, you know, I got tired of talking about myself on my blog. You know, that runs pretty thin pretty fast. And um, Burn kind of became a place where we showed great photo essays. Magazine budgets were down. You couldn't really tell a photographer how to get a job in a magazine anymore. And I thought, well, 
you know, some little pe- sort of neighborhood bravado. What if I started a magazine and it was a place where people could really be? And so that's what I did. The amazing thing with Burn is that um, for me, it was it was super important. I mean, as someone getting into photography and learning about it and having that um, just that that resource, not only that, not only the post, but the comments afterwards. I mean, I was just doing some uh, prep for this. I was going back through my notes from that, that I had taken from road trips and burn. And I mean, you see the comment strings going way back of uh, 400, 500 comments. There's so much you could learn from that discourse. Well, we actually thought about that. Uh, we did publish two print books from burn. In other words, we've got our online audience, but of course for me, everything, the reality of photography ends up either as prints on the wall or in book form. So I'm an analog, tactile person in terms of how a, photo- how a photograph ends up. But So I look at the social media as just uh, audience uh, building only. So we've printed a couple of books and, and then a couple of individual photographer books uh, as well. So I've tried to take that, that uh, online experience and put it on, on paper. And we've thought about, we've actually thought about doing an actual book with just all those comments edited down tight. It would be actually pretty impressive, I think. You talk about being an analog and a print guy, and you've done, you've done quite a few books with the Burn imprint in the past few years, your own as well as other photographers. Do you have a particular point of view as a publisher? Do you think, is there like a certain kind of work that you want to publish beyond just being strong? No, strong is good. Strong is good. Strong's enough. Yeah. I uh yeah, I've got very eclectic tastes when it comes to uh just about everything actually. And uh, I mean, I can enjoy the higher levels of uh anything, whether it be music or art or whatever, and photography. So I um I mean, I do my own thing. And I'm constantly surprised that photographers who do their own thing get really possessive of their own thing and end up not liking anything outside their own work. And that, to me, is, like, really, really dangerous. No, I like lots of stuff. And uh, maybe I'm influenced by it, by it. Maybe I'm not. You never know what happens to an influence exactly. Uh, but I'm constantly in awe of people who do things that I don't do at all. And I might look at it and think, gee, I wonder what, what would happen if I tried that. But then you realize anything that you tried that would be really radical, it's a 10-year. It takes 10 years to do anything. Yeah. And so then you start looking at it. That's, that's not very practical. But you can be influenced by it anyway or just enjoy it. So, yeah, I like lots of types of photography done by people who do something completely different from what I do. And even with my students... I absolutely try. I try to get my students to not do what I do. Now, they're going to lean in that direction anyway. No matter how much I tell them, don't copy me. They're going to do it anyway a little bit because they came to my class and they kind of, that's kind of what they want to do. But then I really do try to get them to move away from whatever it is that I'm doing and do their own thing. It's a really hard thing and it's a really interesting discussion because there's the the subject of visual literacy, which is just, you know, knowing, you know, having a, a strong visual sense and being able to, to make pictures. But then, is that enough? Is it enough to have a strong sense of visual literacy or do you really, is having a point of view just as important? Is that well, I, I sort of roll point of view in with the visual literacy. There's being visual. Yeah. Just visual. 
you got to have that. You got to have an eye. You've got to be able to connect the dots visually. So that's just, you know, like a photograph, well composed, good moment, drama, whatever it takes to make a good photograph. Uh, visual literacy is a little more involved than that because that involves may, perhaps using two, three, four, ten, twenty, hundred thousand pictures together in a sequence or as a body of work. And I think that constitutes the uh, visual literacy part. Right. Just as it would be in words or in a song. You could go bum, 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 bum. But if you don't do the whole symphony, you don't have anything. Same with uh, language. You could, uh, you could construct a perfect sentence. But four sentences put together becomes a poem, for example. Mm -hmm. And same with photography. So it, it, it becomes how you use the, uh, the individual images together that I think forms what I think of as having a sense of uh, visual literacy. Because photography is, in fact, a very new language. I do look at it as a language. And it's a very common language. It's probably the world's only common language at this point. I mean, everybody in the world speaks photography. Yeah. And, uh, and some people are daunted by that or, or put off by that or think, oh, that's the end of photography. To me, that's the beginning of photography. Once you eliminate all the technical stuff and people can just pick up their phone and take a picture mm -hmm. and get a good technical picture basically every time, then that eliminates all the hocus-pocus part and then you really can start looking at it as a language. And if everybody speaks a language, that's cool. Uh, listen, human yeah. nature, there's always going to be somebody that goes up above the mean level, right? There's yeah. no such thing as everybody being equal. That just doesn't happen in any aspect of our nature. So uh, some people will take the 300 words of the English language, for example, and again, write a play or write a book or write a poem. Other people speak the language perfectly correctly, but they're not making art out of it. And the same is true of photography. reading this interview with uh, the short story writer George Saunders and he was talking about how when he first started off he, he wanted to be Hemingway and he was writing like Hemingway for I think seven or eight years and he, had, he wrote a few novels and you know he really wasn't getting anywhere as a writer and then one day he was he was working as a technical writer for some engineering firm and he wrote this little this little like Dr. Susie kind of doodle and he brought it home and put it down on the table and from upstairs one night he heard his wife laugh at it and he talks about that being this pivotal moment where he realized that forget about this Hemingway stuff he has to be himself and write from his own life do you see a lot of young photographers or even older photographers kind of struggle with that yeah I think the uh, I think that is the challenge is having your own voice and when you're very young you're going to be influenced by a super athlete or a super musician or a super artist and you're going to copy that person you, you find a baseball player that you like you want to play for the for the new york yankees and if you're a photographer you want to be like henri cartier bresson or you want to be like ansel adams you choose somebody whose work that you like and it's only natural that you would copy that person or be influenced by that person for a while i mean i think even the greats were influenced by other greats no matter how great they are 
Uh, so you start out by copying or being influenced by, and then at some point, you do, yeah, you need to break away from that. You end up actually kind of rejecting huge parts of the person that you copied. The more you study that person, then after a certain point, you're going to absolutely go reverse on it. <laughs> you're going to go, you're going to reject it. Yeah. It's like being a kid growing up. You know, you're accepting everything that your parents tell you, and then suddenly one day you're a teenager and you reject everything your parents tell you. And then a few years later, then you come back to a happy medium. And as an artist, you have to do the same thing. At some point, you have to reject all the stuff that you believed or learned or thought about in the beginning and go off on a whole new path. And then you kind of come back, just like you come back to your parents' original teaching, but... To get your own voice, you have to be out there all alone. Yeah, you got to be. I think the, 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 the facing the reality of being absolutely alone and coming up with your own voice, I mean, I think that is the challenge. Now, you know, it seems that at 20 or 21, you, you had kind of found your voice. You, you'd, figured, you'd figured your style out, and you were shooting pretty unbelievably within that style. Was there a time where you, you kind of, you were into this and you were into that, and you kind of ended up going in that direction, or was all, you always had a pretty clear sense of? I always had a pretty clear sense of uh, where, I, yeah, I had a very clear sense of, of where I wanted to be, but that didn't mean that I uh, didn't experiment, especially in university uh I was encouraged to experiment, and I did experiment. I've got a little book of pictures that I'll show you that I did in college that don't look anything like what, what, I, what I do now. Hmm. I experimented with toning. I experimented with 8x10 cameras, big cameras, film cameras, portraiture, studied lighting. So I'm pretty classically trained. Zone system, everything done right. So in, there's one part of me that's very classically Ansel Adams trained yeah. one way. And then another part that's a street photographer like Cartier-Bresson. But then I put, rejected all of those things and put my own thing in, which was color, which I rejected at first because I still think of myself as a black and white photographer. But then I, I got into Goya, for example, and Caravaggio and a few other painters and, then, uh, and the French Impressionists. And so then I started looking at color in a different way than what I'd seen from any American photographers. I was mostly into the European photographers, and they were black and white photographers. There were no European color photographers that I can think of even at all from that era. Yeah. You don't like to talk about color in, in a formal way. No, uh, I shoot color and black and white exactly the same way, and everybody just doesn't want to hear that. Any good color work the color is always very good. I mean, it's a formal, you know, property of, of a photo. The color has to be good. Is it more with editing then? You know, that you... No. No. I, I don't think I can articulate very well exactly my process when I'm looking at something, but I can see it in color or black and white simultaneously. And that's why, and I can prove that because if you pull any of my color books out and you imagine it as a black and white picture, you'll be able to easily do that. If you look at those Leica pictures in there in that magazine that you were just looking at, that cover shot's a color shot, but you could easily imagine it as a black and white, right? All, all of my color pictures, you could turn them into black and white. Yeah. And if you can't turn them into black and white, then I probably don't like it. Huh, that's interesting. So, I mean, so you don't really hold color as, as the sacred thing. No, I'm trying to get rid of color. If you look at, <laughs> no, I'm trying to get rid of it because color to me uh, has great potential for ruining a picture. I, if you look at my 
color pictures that people say, oh, wow, what color? I just cringe when I hear somebody say that. God, you really know how to use color. I think, oh, no. This is supposed to be a black and white picture that's in color. Dark, Goya-esque, highlights, shadows I don't care about. So I'm down in there with usually one color or two colors at the most. And like I say, the picture should be the same either way. And when I was working on American Family, I even carried that to extreme by having ISO 400 film in my bag. And I would grab a roll of film and I wouldn't know whether it was color or black and white. Hmm. I wouldn't care. I could pick up Tri-X or Kodak Portra. And that just goes against all conventional wisdom because you're teaching that, well, you're going to think different in black and white and color. And I'm really not thinking any different in black and white and color. Hmm. I think that means I'm a black and white photographer, basically. Yeah. I think that's what that means. Yeah. But I, I can't get away from getting credit as for being a color photographer. <laughs> it's very, very weird. No, it's very strange. No, it is. It, it, maybe it's not. I think there's probably somebody else. I think it would take somebody besides me to uh, describe that process, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I don't overthink uh, the process too much. Well, I was working in black and white from age 12 to my late 20s. So from 12 years old, you were totally into it. I mean, throughout your teenage years, you were shooting pretty consistently. Yeah, I've had uh, Tell It Like It Is. People are interested in Tell It Like It Is because they said, well, you were only 22 when you did that. Yeah. From my vision of those years, that was late in the game. Yeah. The, there's stuff before Tell It Like It Is that I'm, I'm going backwards and forwards at the same time. I'm doing new work like based on a true story, and I'm constantly working on new stuff, but I'm also going back doing retro stuff, which I always didn't want to do I never wanted to look back I put everything in the closet but then it gets to a ridiculous point where I thought wait a minute you got these huge bodies of work like tell it like it is that have got some historical significance and so you should publish it and so I did but now the next time I'm going to go backwards I'm going forwards and further backward one more time like wow. right now I got tell it like it is and I got the Henio book brand new and beach games that's yeah. now but I can go one more I can go one more backwards. What's one and more I backwards? Can go, well, I can go back to before I was 22. I got a, I got, I've, I could publish a book from 12, 13, 14. I did a lot of cool stuff, actually. I was reading about Tidewater. What was that? Tidewater was my first experimentation into color. And so I guess I must have been 23 or 24 by that time. So 22 for this, 23, 24. I was using audio and multiple slide projectors and doing what we used to call audio-visual shows. I mean, I'm talking about a tape deck. I would have, it wasn't all in one place. I had to turn on the tape machine. I had three carousel projectors uh, tied together. I had the buttons like literally gaffer taped to the table and I would play it like a piano. I had to memorize the track. <laughs> That's pretty. <laughs> but it was it was you know, no, it was a real lie. each performance was a different one, slightly different cuz I couldn't ever get it exactly right each time. And I spent a year doing um basically going back and exploring uh where I grew up. You know, I had polio when I was a kid, so you know, isolated at age six in a hospital thing, in a hospital ward, seems like a really bad thing. And it was a really bad thing. It was a life or death thing. But I read a lot of books there, and it 
you know, you really face yourself when you're looking at death when you're like six years old, right? I mean, you really get some other sense of life that way. And then from, by the time I get out of the hospital, from then till like about 12, I was really, really alone. So by the time I was like 18, I was kind of messed up like every other teenager, except that I was really together in another way. In other words, I had a real strong sense of myself more than the other kids just because I'd been through a lot of stuff. And, uh, and also alone in the woods uh, most of the time. So I was living in my imagination, hmm. living with that past thing in the hospital, glad to be out of there, glad to be in the woods and formulating all these things. So I was messed up. I mean, I'm still messed up from that. <laughs> No, really, but uh, on the other hand, on the other hand, in another way, I was really, really solid, tight, solid. I had no, I had confidence in my work. I knew that photography was my thing. I had early success with it. Even when I was a kid, I was winning prizes in college. I won the big national contest and all this stuff. So I was struggling and poor, but I had confidence in the work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I started teaching while I was a grad student. I was ahead of my fellow students and ahead of my teachers too. Not because I was smarter than the students nor the teachers. I had just been doing it longer than any of them. I right. mean, I'd been reading every book, looked at every picture. Plus, I'd been out practicing it in the dark room. I had to tell it like it is when I was a grad student. I mean, none of the other kids had a book. <laughs> yeah, no, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, so I looked at that and I saw that they were, I saw that they were struggling with various ideas and th ways of thinking about things. So I started helping them out. So I even shot a story for one of my students. I completely cheated. I shot a photo <laughs> essay for one of my students who was struggling. Wow. He actually started thinking it was his by the end, though, and then I had to pull it. Said, Wait a minute, Quan, I got you through the class, but that's not really your set of pictures. Remember that? I shot those pictures for you. <laughs> So it wasn't even, a, you weren't thinking, oh, uh, you know, teaching could be a good way to make money or something or earn a no, living. No, no. You just felt compelled to do it somehow. No, my, yeah, my mother was a teacher. What did she teach? My mother and father were both from or Iowa farm kids. And I think my mother, when she got out of high school, they didn't have too many teaching requirements back then. But she was teaching in a one-room schoolhouse out there in the prairie with all grades. All subjects, all grades. Kids um, 1 through 12. 15 or 20 kids in a one-room schoolhouse. She taught all subjects, all kids, if wow. you can imagine that. And then later on, uh, she taught elementary school and then junior high school, too. But So she was just, in general, she was just a general teacher to people, not yeah. just the kids in school. She was kind of... 
aside from her teaching, was she always your, your, your you know, your, your biggest fan and supporter? Was yeah. she always very supportive of, of, of your yeah, work? Yeah, yeah. My dad, too, but he was quiet about it. He didn't really get it. His mind was not in the artistic side, but my mother completely got it. Yeah, and she always told me I was great and that kind of stuff. Was that? <laughs> <laughs> that always helps. Well, yeah, I mean, that, what are moms for? I mean, yeah, that's what, yeah, every mom tells their kid the same thing, but you know, you believe it yeah. individually, right? <laughs> was that a bone of contention at all with your dad? I mean, did he want you to, you know, to, to go to college and become a professional and earn a living? Probably, but he didn't say too much about it. He didn't? No, I could kind of feel that he didn't really quite understand it. Uh, he didn't really get it, I don't think, until all of a sudden I had a job at National Geographic. That he got. Uh-huh. Well, it wasn't that he, he wasn't rejecting it. He just saw how life was. You know, you, got a, you went to medical school or you went to law school or you went to business school. You went to engineering school. Photography didn't fit into that right. scenario. And I was in Virginia Beach where there were no photographers. It was a tourist town, a military town. Hmm. There was nothing photography about it. So he was just, his experience just wouldn't support, you know, a profession of photography because all he could see, the only photographers that he could see that made money were ones that were working at portrait studios. Right. And uh, so he just didn't get it from that standpoint. But he also saw that I was fanatic about it and he saw what was happening and he saw, well, he saw Tell It Like It Is when I was 22. But even that didn't really, imagine this, you're in Virginia Beach, it's August, you're, I was working on the beach, basically partying, you know, meeting all the girls on the beach, uh, summertime, and I left that life and went and lived with a black family in the ghetto. I mean, who does that? Why, why did you do that? What was, uh... I, well... It was uh, probably feeling guilty about all the other stuff I was doing. I mean, I was using my camera uh, to meet girls on the beach, which is a good way to meet girls on the beach. <laughs> I mean, it's not all to, you know, it's not really that awful a thing to do. But I knew that I had to. Uh, I knew that uh, there was some sense of guilt attached to that, and so yeah, in the middle of the heat, the hottest this time of the year, like now, hot. I leave the beach, the comfort of the beach, and went into the uh, the ghetto. Yeah. Yeah, nobody does that. Yeah. And uh, they weren't expecting me in the ghetto either. Yeah, there was no part of that equation that anybody could get a handle on. But I knew that it, that, uh, and I, I wasn't alone. I had Charlie Hoffheimer, who was from a well-to-do uh, Norfolk family. His father owned the biggest department store in Norfolk. And uh, but he was also very altruistic oriented and had made contact with uh, in this neighborhood. So he deserves all the credit for actually getting it rolling. Did he find the family or did you find the family? He he has to get credit for finding the family. Mm -hmm. He doesn't remember exactly what happened, but he was he was leading a more traditional existence and was going to law school and he saw himself as a politician etc cetera, etc cetera. but he wanted to do good things for the uh, for the people in the hood mm-hmm. and he was connected with uh, various churches and and social organizations so he really got it rolling so i jumped on his uh, train basically uh-huh Forget the fact that you're, you're you know you're a white kid going into the black ghetto. I mean that that in itself is pretty is pretty interesting. But was the idea of going and living with a family 
for two, three, four weeks, like a lot, the long form project idea. W- were people doing that at the time or? Nobody, no, that's why I think this has got some historical significance. In 1967, there were two major causes going on in my generation. One was the Vietnam War, and then the other big social uh, upheaval at the time, uh, which not, not, not much has changed, right, uh, was, the, uh, was Martin Luther King and uh, trying to get some power to the black people. By the way, I was in Virginia, which was a segregated state, but I was not from a segregated family. I was from a family that sort of believed... Uh, perhaps naively, that everybody was equal, and that's how we were kind of raised. So we, we always saw the, um, the, the black people as not having the best uh, deal, not having the most advantages, having been oppressed. So that just became something that I was very aware of so, as a social thing, having nothing to do with photography or art, just having to do with social a social situation. It was a social discourse situation, and Martin Luther King was moving, uh, was moving forward, and I couldn't afford to like go to Selma, Alabama, or do or go anywhere to be a Life magazine photographer. I could only go 15 miles away, and I went and lived with this family as part of that. By the way, this book was published in December of 1967. And I think by February of 1968, like three months later, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Wow. So this was right before that. I think it might have been a road trips or burn, but there was, a, there was a good quote of yours that I came across, which was, I make my best pictures when I'm right on the edge of decadence. I can still get my act together enough to actually work. Well, you've got to be on the edge of something. You have to be on the edge of something. You've either got to be uh, on the edge of a war or fear or loss or... I don't think you can just have everything perfect. Something's There's got to be some kind of an edge in there. My friends have always been amazed that I could be so close to disaster and then somehow pull it out. They always used to say, Harvey, what the hell? You, you're pulling this one out of you-know-where. How did you do that? Because they, the, what they were seeing was potential disaster. And then I would end up turning it into some kind of a, of a success story. Huh. But, you know, lots of... No, I mean, the, the, the lists of uh, failure stories are longer, you know, as usual, than the longer of success stories. It's not like I've been running around succeeding. you got to get comfortable... Oh, with that as a photographer, right? A lot of failure? A lot of failure, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of failure. Yeah. You know, I've got a healthy ego, so I usually think the work... I'm usually got a... I'm usually thinking that the work is good. Mm-hmm. But I failed in all of the other ways. You know, not getting it in the right place at the right time, whatever. Uh, failed miserably at National Geographic the first time. Maybe we could talk about that a bit, about going on assignment and doing that kind of work where you are a kind of heavily funded National Geographic photographer? I've done it both ways. My best work is underfunded. Mm-hmm. Okay, my best work is before this, I've got my family album that I did when I was 14. That's my best work, actual mm-hmm. best work. 14 years old, absolutely no influence, not even by Cartier Bresson at that point. Yeah. Now, there was not even any book, nothing. So that's really raw. That's my very best stuff. I can't ever do better than that. The stuff that was heavily funded by National Geographic and big ad jobs and all the stuff where I made the money to put my kids through college, that's not my best work. 
And I was always working on the edges of professionalism. I was always aware of the sellout, and I was always aware of exactly what was happening. And I was always doing my personal stuff a lot, mm -hmm. mostly. I mean, Bill Allard and I got away with doing our personal stuff at National Geographic. Everybody else was working their ass off. And, you know, I was in, uh, you know, in Rio de Janeiro, you yeah. know, having a caipirinha and getting stoned and getting paid for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, like no, 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 no. But I wasn't scamming anybody. The people, the, listen, the editors of National Geographic, they were not paying for Dave Harvey to have a good time around the world, and they knew that I was doing that. But I was getting pictures because of that. Look at that picture that won all the prizes, the Ibiza disco thing. Yeah. I mean, I was on like three different drugs, and I don't even know what they were. It was 5 o'clock in the morning. I was just as crazed as those kids down there in the soap suds. But I got the picture. I won prizes with the picture. The editor of the National Geographic loved it, and I was fucked up for two weeks in Ibiza <laughs> with Axl Rose. <laughs> with Axl Rose? Yeah, who I didn't know who he was. <laughs> No, I'm in a private hotel. I'm in a hotel in Ibiza with um, like four rooms and a swimming pool. Yeah. Four rooms. They only rented out four rooms. And it had no name in front, and it's back in the woods in Ibiza. And I'm somehow staying there on geographic expense account. And I hear, you know, and somebody says, hey, you're, you know, those guys at the pool there, that's uh, Guns N' Roses. That's Axl Rose. And I had to call Brian. I said, Brian, have you ever heard of a band called uh, Guns N' Roses? And he says, Dad, you idiot. Yes, of course I've heard of Guns N' Roses. <laughs> so that's my son, Brian, who traveled around the world with me. But anyway, so, I, so I'm in situations like that. Uh -huh. And I got the prize-winning picture. World Press winner in National Geographic and in my book, Divided Soul, and still one of my biggest collector print sales. You're doing something that looks wrong, right? And then they, they can't figure out it's out of the norm. But like I say, you come back with the biggest bullfrog. And so that picture is kind of like that. It's like <laughs> your friends just say, wait a minute, what? This is absolutely not fair. I believe everything is attached to everything else so that the polio is attached to the family pictures. The family turned into a black family. It's always a family. I'm always with a family, yeah. always. So that isolation that I had in polio gave me this incredible sense of insecurity. You know, where's my family? Where are my friends? Where is everybody? And I had that for a long period of time in an isolated place. And then I moved to a ward with the other kids who were dying heavy-duty experience that obviously affects everything after. So I get, get to my family, create a family that didn't even... I had to do the family book just for my own sanity, right? Yeah. At 14. Then when I moved away from my family, I went to another family, only they were black. Yeah. Uh, my hip-hop book is all about these two guys in the South Bronx. I mean, I make a family wherever I go. Magnum's a family. National Geographic was a family. So looking for family is the main quest yeah so is that i mean did, did you kind of do that in rio as well is that sure it, look at based on a true story that book is all about my family the the girls the guys the twins they were the people that I hang around i don't photograph strangers on the street i'm usually photographing people that i know right and if i photograph a stranger on the street it's a stranger that i've 
built up a rapport with. I'm the opposite of Gildan and Parr. Those guys, bam, and keep walking. Right. And I'm, I, I can't do that for any number of reasons. I don't know how to do it. I don't, I don't know how to satirize people. I've tried it. You notice I can't fucking satirize anybody. I can't even do it. I mean, it's weird. And Gildan can't get sentimental either. So it's really funny. I mean, we're, we've talked about that. We're the same age. Uh, he can't really get sentimental. That's just not him. He's just not going sentimental. I mean, it's so so, so deep into his soul, you never get it out. Yeah. And uh, and I can't go harsh on anybody. Yeah. They may not think it's the most flattering picture they've ever seen of themselves. And I'm not trying to make them look good, but I'm always going to make them look uh, part of humanity somehow. Even the guys with the guns and the cops. You know, I put them in a... I'm not trying to do this. I really am not. I would love to just maybe nail them sometimes. But it just comes out that way. And it's got to go back from the to the just looking at life positively because of anything's better than that isolation ward. Right. Right. That's interesting. So it's a, I've analyzed this backwards. I didn't wasn't thinking any of this when I was a kid. As a matter of fact, nobody knew that I was fucked up because I got out of the hospital. As far as my parents, family, and everybody were concerned, David survived polio. Good. The other kids are crippled or dead, and he's out. Yeah. All good news, and they're just going on. Nobody back in the day thought that maybe I was fucked up psychologically, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Which I must have been. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's got me fucked up now, seriously. But at least I kind of know what it is and uh, saw what happened that followed, and then it all turned into a good thing. When people, I talk about being an introvert and people laugh at me because I've learned how to be an extrovert. But if you look at my early life, you'd say he's got to be an introvert. Yeah. He's got to be. Got to be. There's no way out. Polio isolated up until 18 years old uh, or even college. I was basically alone except for a couple of kids in the neighborhood and my family and my camera. But I was out doing that. So total in introvert no people don't understand that people think that uh you know i, I i've had the same the same argument with my family as well because i say I'm, I'm an introvert too and they laugh at me because it's clearly i mean it's clear, clear that i'm that i that i that i seem an extrovert. extrovert yeah but but i feel like an introvert a lot of the time me too yeah yeah it's yeah, strange I, how that happens. i told them it's, it's, it's a weird phenomenon I, I said i'm not trying to prove anything i'm just telling you how i feel you know, that I really uh, feel introverted in most ways, and I've had to fake being uh, an extrovert. And I've tricked my mind. That's why I build the family. It's always a family around. I don't go out to meet, want to meet, I don't want to meet strangers. I yeah. don't want to meet any more new people. I mean, I end up meeting lots of new people. But then they become part of my student family. That becomes a family. So I really... Uh, I'm not photographing stranger. I'm photographing people that I know. Probably treat them good for that reason. So it's kind of like uh, that thing that Crutzen was saying. You know, every artist wanting to you know photograph the same thing throughout their life over and over. I mean, it's it's the same kind of thing. Family. Yeah, you get that's a huge underlying theme. This is a huge underlying theme. The uh, that's right. It's and it's and in my case, I don't need much of a publicist. Need somebody to put it out there, but. It's all provable. You know, I mean, it's not like I'm out trying to start a career and making this shit up. No, this is all, it's a timeline thing. I, at 14, I did the family book, which precedes this. And that led to everything. That led to hip-hop, Divided Soul, yeah, and, and Beach Games. Yeah, it's still the same. Beach Games pretty far out there. Beach Games, 
doesn't seem referential to that stuff. B. B. James, uh, you don't, and and even uh, based on a true story, either really. Do you think of uh, of okay? Well, I'm doing some fiction stuff. I've got the new dude on the roof with candy. Uh, the girl that was here last night, I've got her in two very provocative pictures, but I was photographing women. No, but then I realized I couldn't photograph women in a provocative way unless there was a man in the picture uh-huh. or another woman. So just by themselves, it was never any good. But once I started putting other characters in there, so I did, I've always been interested in fiction. And I always thought that the truth ought to be expanded anyway. Like with based on a true story, there's there's nothing not true in there, but I took the label of photojournalism off of it because I didn't want to have to explain it every time. I just took it off. Yeah. But in truth, there was no there was no not journalism in there. It's just that I'm photographing my friends. That's If they weren't my friends, are they any more valuable a subject than they are? I'm thinking, well, no, wait a minute. This I'm part of the scene too. So you just admit that straight up. That's why I call based on a true story based on a true story. It is a true story. Making all these pictures and editing them down, and then the question of well, what to do with them. You know, every you know every photographer is you know everyone's taking pictures, but it's really the ones who do something with them in an interesting way that end up resonating most. And that's an amazing example of exactly that. I mean, the, the, the photography is great, but it's the way it's all put together. I think that's the main thing, or one of the main things um, that I try to impart to my students, those who I mentor. And that is that act of doing exactly what you just uh, said, Jordan, and that is getting it done, getting it on paper. That is the that is the one step that so many people are absolutely not able to take. When I analyze, uh, when I see successful people, it's funny. They, the successful people are no smarter than everybody else or than a whole lot of other people who aren't so successful. They're not any really any smarter. You meet a lot of smart people who are unable to go from point A to point B. So intelligence really doesn't have too much to do with it. Uh, but the ability to get something done does. And that is the thing that so many people uh, just can't complete the task. Or they can't deliver something on time. If you can deliver something on time and complete the task, you got a job for the rest of your life with somebody. Yeah. Right? And uh, my main demographic for my students, I mean, I have students that are like uh, from 18 to maybe 45 or something. Um, I rarely get a student anywhere near my age, for example. That's my People my age are not my demographic. It's a younger crowd. And I think it's just because I identify with the uh, struggle, uh, especially for young people when they first get out of college, man, all of a sudden they they hit that wall. They got the comfort zone of college with everybody else in the same kind of social circles and not really worried about having a job or anything. They can philosophize uh, all day and all night. And then suddenly they're out there in the real world and they're trying to figure that one out. And so those mid-20s, for example, are really tough for a lot of young people. And then the other age, the other troublesome time are maybe maybe the mid-40s when uh, a photographer feels that he or she has gone in the wrong direction, maybe too commercial, and wants to see if they can come back to the energy they had when they were in their early 20s. Can they jump back 20 years and get back into it? It's always a good question. So I have, yeah, those are two crisis groups. And um, I deal with both of those. Did that ever happen with you? Did you ever? Did you ever feel this, like uh, a bit of a slump or a bit of uh, 
uh, like you needed to come back. Well, you, you joined Magnum when you were fifty. Well, I completely back. Oh, I I completely flipped around a decision. Are you kidding me? When I was thirty three. Uh, yes, I joined the National Geographic staff. I was married, two kids, middle school, and I looked at Magnum also at that time, but my wife wasn't really letting me look at Magnum too much because she said, hey, we got a family to raise, basically. And so National Geographic was steady income and world travel, and Magnum was New York and... Nobody could, she couldn't figure out what, she only saw losing money inside of Magnum and she was in the short term right. But when I joined the staff of National Geographic, as I was signing the dotted line, I'll never forget the moment when I was in the, in the uh, cubicle in the human resources office and I was signing the employee contract to be um, a National Geographic staff photographer, which is a really nice salary job plus a lot of benefits. I hated myself when mm-hmm. I got to the Y in Harvey. <laughs> no, really, I was filled with self-loathing right away, and yet I went through seven years of staying on the staff. What was it about joining joining the staff that you felt that you didn't feel good about? Because I always knew about the context of history. I always knew about Magnum. I always knew about the world outside of National Geographic, which was a very comfortable world, to be sure. And uh, and certainly to be highly regarded, but I always regarded more highly the world outside of National Geographic, the European photographers, Magnum photographers. And I aspired to that, and I knew that I aspired to that, and I felt like I had sold out by signing the employee contract. It wasn't that I wouldn't want to shoot pictures for them. Also, they would own all those pictures, so that was another thing. So I was really selling myself down the river in two different ways. Well, in seven years, I broke that and got divorced simultaneously. And then a few years later, joined Magnum. So then I owned all my pictures. I was out there in the wild again, and I liked that feeling. And, um, no, I've flipped things around a few times like that. I've hmm. taken, I've taken, I've jumped off the cliff any number of times. That's usually when I realize something might be successful. When I take a flying leap, that's usually a pretty good sign. A half-assed leap. Not so much. No. Thanks for letting us invade your home here. My pleasure. It's been a real pleasure. Everybody loves somebody sometimes. <laughs> Everybody falls in love somehow. <laughs> That was my conversation with photographer David Allen Harvey, recorded on the shores of the Outer Banks. Magic Hour is produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and Michelle Macklem, and edited by Crystal Duhame. Special thanks to Lenny Pierre Ramos. For more information on Magic Hour, along with visuals and works that are mentioned in the show, visit magichourpodcast.org. Leave us a review on iTunes, too. We'd really appreciate it.